Welcome to the podcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, and today we're talking about nursing homes, the most dangerous place to be during this COVID-19 pandemic. At the time of this taping, nursing homes account for 49% of all COVID-19 deaths in the state, and the numbers are rising at an alarming rate. Deadly outbreaks are occurring at facilities across the state in rich and poor communities. I'm joined by Tara Gregorio, the president of the Massachusetts Senior Care Association, and Rich Bain, the president of Bain Care Management, which owns 11 nursing homes and two assisted living facilities. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks, Bruce. Great to be here. Rich, it seems like every day there's a story about an outbreak of COVID-19 at some long-term care facility around the state. Why are nursing homes so vulnerable? Well, Bruce, uh, first of all, thanks for uh, inviting me. And uh, I wish it were only one story every day. It seems like there are two, three, and four stories. And that speaks to your question, which uh, is really at the heart of this. Elders who live in nursing homes are the most vulnerable uh, population uh, in the face of this uh, dreaded virus. And when you think about it, it's pretty intuitive. All we're hearing about is the importance of social distancing as the way to mitigate um, the virus. Yet what happens in nursing homes is the exact opposite of social distancing. Our direct care staff provides hands-on care, intimate care, activities of daily living for frail elders who can no longer be cared for at home. So we are actually doing the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do in the face of a contagion like COVID-19. Tara, what's the biggest problem that nursing homes face in dealing with this disease? Well, I think it's what Rich said is firstly that this is an enormously contagious virus and is particularly deadly for our population. And we are a sector that prior to COVID was already extremely under-resourced from a financial as well as a workforce, workforce point of view. So the biggest obstacles facing our members are chiefly workforce, making sure that we have an adequate supply of nursing home workers, as well as adequate supply of PPE so that we can protect our workers, so that they therefore can protect our residents, and then uh, um, access to testing, ensuring that we can really identify the symptomatic as well as the asymptomatic residents and staff, and then uh, um, implement action plans accordingly. So Tara, I think it was about a year ago, if I'm not mistaken, you came on the podcast and we talked about nursing homes and their finances and the problems they were facing at that time. Do you, do you remember that? Oh, of course I remember that. Um, and the truth is, Bruce, not much has changed. If anything, it's gotten worse since that time. We've also now went through a process in which the state has validated many of the numbers and data that we talked about on your podcast, yes, a, a year ago. And what we have found, again, this was a report that was issued in February, that nursing facilities across the Commonwealth are operating at a negative 3.9% margin. And basically the more Medicaid patients you care for, the, more, the greater your losses and 70% of nursing facilities are operating in negative margins. So then you add 
the COVID crisis, and it's all the more severe because you have skyrocketing overtime costs, as well as the need to really provide a rich benefit of incentives to ensure that our workforce are coming to uh, the front lines and taking care of their residents, as well as obviously the increased cost of um, masks, gowns, all the PPE that we need to keep our residents and staff safe. Rich, um, you know, I, I guess I'm sort of like your average person out there. I hadn't really been thinking a lot about nursing homes until about uh, almost two weeks ago. It, they started to rise on my radar screen, but I was troubled that uh, you couldn't get any information on the information, uh, the data that the state puts out every day about the COVID-19 crisis. It's about, they had some information about positive tests at nursing homes and how many nursing facilities had uh, at least one positive case, but they had nothing about deaths at nursing facilities. And it, it took a while of prodding to get them to release that information. And I think it came out on Friday, April 10th. And then it be, you began to see the real scope of the problem. Um, how have you guys been reporting that information all along to the state and they just didn't see a need to release it or, or wh why did it take so long to come out? So I can't speak to what happened happens with the state and what their policies are on releasing the information, but skilled nursing facilities across Massachusetts report um, have been reporting um, information on the virus to the state through a um, something called the mass map, which is a uh, neutral assistance program that collects data in the, in the course of a um, state emergency. And we have been reporting that information all along. Facilities and organizations have different perspectives on releasing information. We, um, in our organization, we have been providing for the last uh, 19 days, information on residents that have tested positive, staff that have tested positive. Um, we've noticed, uh, notified our, all of our facilities if and when we've had um, very sad uh, deaths as a result of the virus. So we've taken a, a position of being very transparent with our information so that our families and our staff can be fully informed. But Tara, maybe you know about this. Did the state uh, have all this information and just wasn't, they weren't publishing it? Because I got to say, they kept talking about hospitals and hospital beds and, and you know, yeah. PPE and all that stuff, which is all important. But there wasn't until the death toll came out that they started to talk a lot about nursing homes. So Bruce, I, I could look at my calendar to determine the exact date, but you are right that um, on the one hand, we had been reporting through the mass map system incidences of COVID positive or COVID suspect cases, but it really wasn't until last Monday that we received a directive from the state to begin reporting through their HICSPA system on COVID deaths or COVID-related deaths. So they weren't really gathering that information. Is that what you're saying? Um, we began, yes. I, what I'm saying is that we were instructed to begin submitting that data through the HICSPA system last Monday. So prior to that, I'm not sure if they were collecting it through some other means, but that was the directive given to nursing facilities to report at that point. So what does that tell you? Um, I mean, that, to me, that's sort of astounding. Um, and especially since it's, it, this is really the hot spot of all hot spots right now. 
So I think, and Rich can chime in, but I think what's astounding is the fact that we are, you're right, in the midst of the hot spot and the crisis is really in nursing facilities. Um, I think the state has been, done a tremendous job of focusing on hospital surge and doing all we can through social distancing and tracing methods to really try to protect our communities, but where the virus is most severe is in our long-term care facilities. So we are now just widespread testing in our nursing facilities. Hopefully that is also, I think it's intended to expand into assisted living and other settings, but clearly uh, we do need to have redouble our focus relative to the crisis in nursing facilities. And so in a lot of ways, we already are seeing the percolation of severe hot spots, but where we can, what we can do now is to implement good policies related to surveillance testing, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about surveillance testing and what that means, as well as access to PPE. I know the state has said that they have made PPE available to nursing facilities, and that's great that they have um, made that available, but it's simply not enough. It, it, and we need to make sure that we do have access to critical critical gowns as well as the um, masks and such and, and others. But it's staffing. We need to make sure that we're investing in our staffing and the way that we do that, we believe, is through an investment in a hero's wage, doubling the pay of each and every worker that's working the front line. So let me add to the, the original question, Bruce, which is that, you know, it, there's a sports metaphor here is that um, the state was guarding the wrong man early on. And there was a lot of great attention to the hospital surge um, and what was going to happen as uh, ICUs and hospitals became uh, filled up. And a lot of attention was given to the idea of standing up COVID release, uh, COVID recovery nursing homes. That, uh, the nursing home sector uh, mobilized very quickly, frankly, in, ahead of the state guidance to prepare for this. We knew this was coming. Um, and the, the issue, as Tara has pointed out, right away is resources. Uh, we, all the preparations that we have been making for the last now four weeks um, are in the face of a limited resource allocation from the very beginning. So we've been screaming for PPE. The state has been very helpful um, in terms of helping us identify uh, places to source the um, personal uh, protective equipment. But frankly, uh, when Tara talks about heroes pay and double pay, we're having to do that to get our staff to step up in the face of this crisis. And uh, at the end of the day, there's gonna be a, um, some kind of reconciliation because we don't have the resources to pay double time for our staff. We're doing it, but at some point, we're just gonna run out of funds. And the way people are doing it right now in the absence of state support is by not paying their other vendors in bills. So I would imagine that, as Rich said, there will be, come June and July, an enormous uh, threat to the stability of our sector, financially, that is. So give me a sense, Rich. These workers that we're talking about heroes pay for, my understanding from earlier interviews is that they're not getting paid a huge amount to begin with, right? Well, you know, as has been uh, well documented, um, our um, workforce has been underpaid and under-resourced for a decade because of the reimbursement structure within which we've been operating. So that our, uh, the average starting salary or average starting wage rate for a certified nursing assistant who provides the most intimate hands-on care 
is $13. And for our licensed staff, our licensed nurses are in the high 20s to low $30 an hour. So we're, they're having, we're having to compete against hospitals that are paying $35, $40, $50 an hour for those nurses. So our um, staff is already, we're already challenged at the outset to uh, generate uh, high quality staffing and to pay them and compensate them for the great work that they do. So put that in perspective, they're, they're not paid all that well, but they're being asked to go into a situation that is pretty dangerous in a lot of ways. And um, that's, not a good, that's not a good equation. Tara, you've talked in the past about the shortage of workers or the, the lack of jobs that aren't filled right now. Talk a little bit about that. So in March, if we were talking on March 1st, I would have described us as having a 17% vacant, vacancy rate, which means that we needed to fill 5,600 direct care positions. Today, as we're talking, we have a 40% vacancy rate. So that is 12,000 to 15,000 positions that we need to fill. That's an enormous number of direct care workers that we immediately need to identify and incentivize to come to work in long-term care. But even before we focus on the recruitment, we need to work on the retention. And to your point, you just said, Bruce, these are individuals who from their heart and core do this because they want to protect and provide for their residents. We cannot take advantage of their generosity and courage. We must pay them a hero's wage. And we believe that it's double time. I know other organizations um, in the healthcare space are talking about time and a half or other sort of dollar amount bonuses. We believe it's double time. It, for the reason that, that Rich had articulated, we can't even compete with what a CNA earns in a hospital. So the, our version of time and a half would just put us on par with what an entry level hospital would pay the CNA. So the importance of of investing in our workforce cannot be overstated. And they're all related. The testing, the PPE and workforce investments all need to be done with the same enthusiasm and same success if we have any chance of winning this fight against COVID. Rich, how do you manage your facilities? Uh, sort of, it sounds like with fewer workers than you'd like. Uh, talk a little bit about the challenge of doing that. Well, it, uh, Bruce, it's a monstrous challenge. Um, I happen to be fortunate in that my facilities are geographically clustered. So I'm able to um, allocate my staff within a geography, um, depending on where the need is. So, if I, so I, I have, for example, four facilities down the South Shore. So to the extent that we can safely, and when I say safely, it means um, with regard to the virus, allocate staff from one building to another, we do that but it is a uh, constant uh, work in progress and we're managing every day, every shift, every building very aggressively. Tower was right, um, going from a 15% vacancy rate to a 40% vacancy rate is a staggering difference. So we're asking our staff to step up, to work more hours, to work harder, and heroes pay a double time is absolutely the least we can do for these heroes because that's what they truly are. Tara, you talked about uh, some type of tense testing that we should talk about a little bit. Tell me, tell me what you're referring to. So um, 
again, in the course of a month, we've gone to virtually no access to testing to now the state evolving to a spot where we, it seems we'll have baseline testing. And baseline testing will allow us to know how many COVID positive and COVID negative staff and residents we have. What surveillance testing does is it gives us with a surety when we test in five or three days later that those COVID negatives are truly COVID negatives. Because as you know, Bruce, you or I could go to the grocery store today and, and perhaps come in contact with COVID, uh, be infected with COVID. So the importance of routine testing, particularly for our vulnerable population as well as our workforce. And so what we again know is that we have a number of asymptomatic positive residents as well as staff. And when we have, when we test our staff and they do um, potentially come back asymptomatic positive, there's guidance now that says they need to quarantine and, and, and hopefully, please God, get better at home. So we need to make sure that we have that backfill and support from the Commonwealth to fill those staffing positions. So they're all related to each other, as well as the PPE to protect our staff. Let me add on the testing. Um, testing is great public policy. It's clearly the right thing to do. But there's a, another side to the, the sword here, and that is to be specific, when we do the broad testing and, and uh, the surveillance testing to be able to specifically identify the volume of the COVID positives, Many of those COVID positives are, end up being our staff members who themselves may be asymptomatic. So that only exacerbates the staffing problem that we have to start with. So the more we test, the more we have a staffing problem. And it's kind of an unsolvable puzzle. So Rich, when have, have you, some of your facilities, have the, has the National Guard come to test at any of those facilities? We've had the National Guard come to test in one of our facilities. And it showed that we had a very large number of positive residents. Um, and it did create a uh, cascade of a staffing problem there. So we had to bring in um, staffing from other buildings to help support the care in uh, that facility. So that's where I'm sort of wondering right now. Again, I'm not as close to it as you folks are, but it seems like when the guard or whoever comes in to test, they usually find a lot of positives in, in these facilities. Um, and it, it may start as a small number, but it quickly mushrooms into a very large number. Some of the numbers are just astounding. Um, so Bruce, that goes back to my original premise, which is we are doing the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. So you're supposed to have social, social distancing. So it can't be a surprise that when you don't have social distancing, you have large numbers of asymptomatic and symptomatic positive residents. But I guess what I'm wondering, here we are, the governor has sort of said the surge is between April 10th and April 20th. April 20th will be Monday. So we're right in the thick of things. Are we too late? Uh, I mean, is it, is it, is it, I, I just sort of feel like the more you test, the more we're gonna find, yes, but it seems like it's out there already. So um, it, it's not a question of we're more, it, are we too late? Um, it was, we were never going to be able to avoid this situation. What is going to happen, however, that as the surge that everybody's talking about starts to diminish a little bit, there's gonna be a very, very long tail. 
in nursing homes. This, this issue of um, high numbers of positive uh, residents and staff members in nursing homes is not going to go away as the surge goes away and that we're gonna be in, in our sector in this issue for a long time. Well, why, tell, explain why that is. You mean because uh, there's like 14 day period or, or is that what you mean? I think that we will be in this for, as Rich said, um, he's absolutely spot on. There's a long tail for nursing facilities where I anticipate that we will have to continue surveillance testing, PPE, until we have a vaccine, Bruce, because of the reasons that, that Rich said, we're a very intimate organization of people where we're providing direct hands-on care so we'll never be able to truly be social distanced from one another and we know that this virus is very contagious and particularly deadly in the elderly and those with um, multiple conditions which is exactly our nursing home population so until we have treatments and vaccines we will need to redouble our efforts in nursing facilities. So to your point, if we sort of whew, make it through the surge, and I know there's been a tremendous amount of effort on behalf of the governor, and we applaud him for that relative to the surge, we now need to take those, those attitudes and efforts to really protect our nursing facility residents, as well as assisted living across the continuum. Because as Rich said, this isn't going to um, stop being a threat to our, our residents and staff until there's a vaccine. And Rich, if you could communicate a little bit, um, I was reading last night uh, a letter that the administrator of a uh, nursing home in Belmont had to send out to all his, uh, fam the families of the residents at his facility. It was, a, it was a heartbreaking letter that he had to send out. Is this something that was gonna be common for you and your colleagues in the industry? Uh, it, just seems, it just seems so tough. Sadly, it is. Um, I think that uh, all of those, uh, all of my colleagues are experiencing the same heartache that uh, the people uh, in the Belmont facility are experiencing. Maybe not to the same extent that, that they are there, but um, this virus is, as Tara said, it's not going away. It's impacting everybody. And the frail elderly for whom we care are the ones that are most vulnerable. And just by the epidemiology of this, there are going to be, there will be a mortality rate. And it's horrible, it's heartbreaking, it's crushing to those of us that are providing the care every day. I've been doing this since 1984. I've been at this a long time. I've never, never in my wildest dreams could I have imagined a situation as devastating and challenging as this. And it's taking every ounce of what I have and the organization that I uh, work beside to, to dig in and fight this. Tara, I'll give you a last chance to say one other thing if you want. What I will say, Bruce, is that it doesn't have to be the worst case scenario. We don't need to lose 10% of our residents to this deadly contagious virus. And the way that we do it is by investing in testing, PPE, and a hero's wage. So we don't have to have the worst case scenario. Um, and that's what I'm working aggressively um, to, to educate lawmakers and the governor to, to help provide the supports that we need to fight this war. Tara Gregorio and uh, Rich Bain, thank you both very much for appearing on the podcast. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next week.
Thank you, Bruce. Thank you Thank so you. much.